Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. It's me, Steve Hall, as always. And today I am very happy to have Greg back on the show. Um, and I was going to say I wanted to throw a quick question at Greg. Obviously, hopefully the listeners realize who Greg Potter is. Uh, he has a PhD in sleep. He's been on the podcast many times. He is my go-to resource for all things sleep uh, and other things as well, uh, as we're going to be talking today primarily about crony nutrition, uh, which is kind of the and I don't I might miss word the way and what it actually is so I'll let Greg actually describe what chrononutrition exactly is but I wanted to throw one sleep question at Greg just because it's something that's been happening to me really regularly over the last maybe couple of weeks where I keep waking up like an hour before my alarm so I my alarm is like 10 to 7 and I keep waking up and it's actually ridiculously consistent at 10 to 6 and my question was what do you do in such an instance when you have 60 minutes? Because 90 minutes is a full sleep-wake cycle there or thereabouts, I believe. So I wasn't sure if I should just get up uh, and just take the take it. or And I, what I have been doing is trying to get back to sleep. <laughs> so throwing that one at you, Greg. How have you been feeling? So I tend, and this probably gives me my answer, when I wake up at 10 to 6, I feel pretty fresh. Uh, and I get up, go to the loo, and then I get back into bed, and then I sleep for another, try and sleep for another hour. Typically, I do get back to sleep, and then I probably would say I don't wake up as fresh when I wake up the hour later, even though I've had more sleep. So I guess that might give me my answer. I think you just start considering <laughs> questions, Steve. So that would be for the listeners if they found themselves waking up before their alarm, if they felt good and ready to get up, basically get up yeah i think so and it's perfectly normal at this time of year to wake up a bit earlier because the sun's rising earlier and another consideration is that if you do get up when you first wake up then your waking day will probably be slightly longer and the longer that you've been awake the greater the pressure there is for you to sleep so the following evening your sleep is likely to be slightly better consolidated and possibly slightly longer that makes good sense. I should just, just, I'm like that stubborn bodybuilder who's so set in his ways and routine where it's like, no, I wake up at this time. Now I'm not getting up now. Um, and I guess, <laughs> I don't know if there's, would there be like a cutoff time? So if it was like, I don't know, the 90 minutes, does that make it more, there's more opportunity for it to be a good idea to continue sleeping? So I wouldn't worry about 90 minutes. And yes, a sleep cycle is typically roughly 90 minutes, but I think sometimes people think that sleep is this solid block of these 90 minute periods. And in reality, it's much less regular than that. And what commonly happens is people will never enter the deeper stage of sleep within that particular sleep cycle. So I wouldn't overthink it. And in terms of when it becomes a problem, I think it becomes a problem when people's daytime function becomes impaired. So if people are not able to concentrate at work, for example, or if their mood starts to deteriorate, then I would start thinking about some of those things that we spoke about in the last podcast and probably focus primarily on stimulus control of behavior and possibly a little bit of sleep restriction, but it always depends on what the source of the sleep issue is. Yeah. Right now for you, just wouldn't worry about it. Cool. 
All right, fantastic. Thank you, Greg. So I, I know what to do now and I can get to work sooner. So that should really be a good thing, um, which means hopefully I can clock off sooner as well. So anyway, the, the chat that we were meant to be talking about today and we will uh, focus for the majority of the time is chrononutrition. And I know for you, Greg, uh, you're big on kind of helping people manipulate their lifestyle to get better results from their training. And part of that is definitely nutrition. And a lot of the listeners of being more physique focused will be very aware of like nutrient timing and kind of the importance around training and potentially like muscle protein synthesis through the day but they may have not considered chrononutrition and kind of its role with the circadian rhythm and so i'd love for you to maybe just give us an introduction to what chrononutrition is where the current science is and what that might mean practical application wise and the strength of that um and then we can dig into maybe specifics and maybe i've that was too broad. <laughs> or too I was going to say, you've just Basically teed up another an stupidly long answer. <laughs> but I, I, I'm going to avoid doing that. And I'm just going to describe what chrononutrition is. Perfect. Chrononutrition is a term that I think was first introduced in a Japanese book in the early 2000s. And it really describes the reciprocal relationship between our bodies biological rhythms and our circadian rhythms specifically and our nutrition and what i mean by that is that what and when we eat influences the timing and the function of our body's clocks but at the same time if we understand how our body's circadian rhythms are regulated then we can use that information to inform what and when we eat in order to improve our health and performance perfect and i know from like bodybuilding old folklore it's a case of like um and actually i guess it's a common saying is like have a i think it's something along the lines of like a breakfast of a king like lunch of a pawpaw or i can't remember the exactly the, the wording of that but obviously bodybuilders for a lot of the time were and people were under the impression you shouldn't eat after like 6 p.m and like have a big healthy like large breakfast and then um and these various kind of rules and ideas and I don't know if there's been any kind of very clear practical takeaways from the chrononutrition research in terms of when it might be best to eat or even down to like what to eat food composition wise as well, even macronutrient wise. Sure. The old saying, I think something like breakfast, like a king, lunch, like a prince and dinner, like a pauper. Yeah, that makes and sense. That makes sense to what I was trying to get to. <laughs> yeah. And I think in general terms, that makes a lot of sense for most people. But with that said, I like the idea actually of just giving people the tips first at the start of this podcast, because what typically happens is you give them at the end and if I'm speaking, then people are probably tuned out by then anyway. So let's front load the tips this time. And this is of course person dependent. And I'm going to preface this answer by saying that I think that given that the majority of research on things like time-restricted eating, which entails consuming all of your calorie-containing items within a period of 12 hours or less each day. That's my definition, at least. Most of that research has been done on people who don't have particularly good cardiometabolic health. And for that reason, we can look at that research and use it to inform recommendations for healthy people. But I just want to make it clear that 
it's not as if a lot of this work has been done on physique athletes or people who are otherwise metabolically healthy. With that said, my starting guidelines would be something like the following. And I'll go through this in roughly chronological order as usual. <laughs> so I would typically recommend that people wait at least half an hour or so until after their natural wake time, until they consume their first calories of the day. I say natural wake time because something like 80% of Northern European adults at least wake to an alarm. And if you wake up at 6 a.m. and you naturally wake at 7 a.m., then I'd probably wait until at least 7.30 a.m. before consuming any calorie-containing items. And I would typically recommend a caloric period or eating window of six to 12 hours each day for most people. So in this instance, that might be somebody beginning consuming calories at 7.30 a.m. and ending at 7.30 p.m. at the latest. And I would generally make that caloric period proportional to energy intake. So if you are actively trying to lose fat at the moment, then given that your energy intake will necessarily be lower than if you are in energy balance, you are going to be consuming fewer calories and you want each eating occasion to be satiating. And for that to happen, it makes sense to have fewer meals. And we'll touch on this later, but in general, the research has shown so far that fat-free mass retention doesn't seem to be affected that much by the caloric period when somebody uses time-restricted eating. So for you, Steve, if you're in the off-season, then maybe you have a 12-hour caloric period. If you're deep in your contest prep, then you could try a shorter one, maybe an eight-hour period, for example. I would typically recommend that people consume discrete meals as opposed to snacking throughout that period and normally recommend that people wait three to six hours between those individual meals and if you look at the research on skeletal muscle protein metabolism then i think the sweet spot is probably something like four hours between those period because muscle protein synthesis becomes refractory to hyperamino acidemia meaning that if you consume a bolus of protein and then another bolus an hour later, that second bolus isn't going to do anything to further increase muscle protein synthesis, which is the right. main determinant of muscle protein balance. Then I would say that within this caloric period, if we put physical activity to one side, then in terms of your cardiometabolic health, you want to front load your caloric intake and your carbohydrates and fat intake specifically. I think you want to distribute your protein intake quite evenly between those events within the caloric period. If anything, I would actually have the highest protein intake at the final meal of the day, given that you're likely going to be going, in this instance, 12 to 18 hours without consuming any more protein, and therefore without further stimulating muscle protein synthesis. So the reason for that in short is that oral glucose tolerance is much higher relatively early in the biological day. 
And for that reason, if somebody consumes, let's say, 100 grams of carbohydrate from white rice at 8 a.m. and looks at their blood sugar responses to that bolus of rice, comparing that to consuming the exact same thing at 8 p.m., their blood sugar responses will be much greater in the evening than they would be at 8 a.m., as would their insulin responses, which are necessary to dispose of the glucose in appropriate organs. So then I would say, in terms of protein intake, something like 0.4 grams per kilogram of body mass at each dietary event mm. is probably enough to maximize muscle protein synthesis at those discrete events. Depends on the quality of the protein. And specifically, it tends to depend on the leucine content of the protein. Leucine is interesting in that unlike the other amino acids, it can independently stimulate muscle protein synthesis. And the amount of leucine that you need on a per event basis to maximize muscle protein synthesis isn't entirely clear, but it's probably around three grams for a lot of people listening to this. And you would get that from something like 30 grams of protein from whey protein, for example, or maybe slightly more than 30 grams of protein from chicken or beef. Then I would say you want to consume your caffeine relatively early in the day, as we discussed previously, normally say up to three milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body mass, at least nine hours before bedtime. And then regarding alcohol intake, no more than two units per day, which is about a pint of beer or medium glass of wine no later than about four hours before bedtime. And then otherwise I would say that it's important for people to keep their meal timing consistent from one day to the next. There's been some interesting research by the likes of Ian McDonald showing that when people consume a fixed number of meals each day as opposed to a varying number of meals, if you keep everything else constant, so the average number of meals each day is constant, as is the number of calories, as is the macronutrient composition of the diet, then when people consume a regular number of meals each day, they have greater diet-induced thermogenesis, they have better appetite regulation, and they tend to have better blood sugar and blood lipid regulation too. So regularity is important, although occasional deviations from regularity are unlikely to be problematic. And then, I would typically recommend that people stop consuming any calorie-containing items at least two hours before bedtime. And if it's possible, it makes sense to have this caloric period relatively early in your waking day. So I think strictly from a cardiometabolic health perspective, it would be better to have, let's say, a six-hour caloric period between half an hour after you wake up and six and a half hours after you wake up as opposed to between six and a half hours after you wake up until 12 and a half hours after you wake up. Then I would say, interestingly, the timing of your nutrition will probably influence how you respond to certain medications. There's been some fascinating preclinical research showing that if you give mice paracetamol in high doses, then the time of day at which it's most toxic to the mice 
moves in lockstep with changes in diet timing. And the reason is that it seems that the timing of your nutrition is important to setting the timing of the clocks within the cells and numerous tissues in your body. And those clocks determine things like how effectively different cells will detoxify certain chemicals, including drugs. So I would say you want to keep the timing of your medication consistent too. And this is a whole different discipline named chronopharmacology. And the idea is that if you can optimize the timing of certain medication, then you can potentially improve the efficacy of medication as much as twofold and improve the tolerability. So the likelihood of causing adverse effects by as much as fivefold. And this is a very nascent field. And people have primarily studied things like anti-cancer drugs and drugs for arthritis. But it's really interesting. And what I would say is if you are taking medication, the next time you go and see your doctor, you probably want to ask him or her if there is a best time of day at which to take the medication, because there might well be. And obviously, in terms of the things that we've spoken about previously, this is most relevant to caffeine and melatonin. Then I would say that that will cover the needs of the majority of people listening to this, but there are a couple of modifying factors. So one of these is that if you're on a ketogenic diet, which I'm guessing if you're listening to this, you're probably not because you're probably focus on focusing on optimizing your strength training performance and adaptations to that training. Not that I think that being on a keto diet would necessarily dramatically impair those adaptations. I just don't think that it's optimal for most people. If you're on a keto diet and you're struggling to get into ketosis, then you might benefit from a slightly shorter caloric period. There's been some work by Courtney Peterson's lab showing that when people undergo so-called early time-restricted eating, their ketonemia, so their blood ketone levels in the morning, tends to be a little higher than when they have a longer caloric period. I'd also say if you're pregnant, while I doubt very much that time-restricted eating is likely to be problematic because so far all the studies have shown that it's perfectly safe. I, I wouldn't recommend that someone who's pregnant use a very short caloric period. I, I'd probably gravitate towards something like a 12-hour period. Although, interestingly, there has been some work published recently showing that if people have a later dinner and concentrate their calories later in the day, then they tend to gain more weight specifically during the last trimester of pregnancy. And also tangentially, it was just a paper published looking at the timing of dinner relative to the timing of sleep and relative to sunset in several European countries. And it found a strong positive correlation between the timing of that and the risk of passing away from COVID-19 which is really interesting, but I also wouldn't jump to any conclusions based on that. It is, it is definitely something that should be studied more, though. So I think there are those populations who should probably factor in 
their goals. And then otherwise, I think for people who have certain clinical conditions, such as some gastrointestinal problems, time-restricted eating might be particularly helpful because you're basically giving your GI tract to break from breaking down food and you're doing so on a regular basis. And then finally, for everyone listening to this, I think if you're going through a period of time when you're finding yourself disposed to eating more than you would like, let's say it's Christmas time and if you're anything like what I used to be like, then you just eat round the clock. It's at those times when time-restricted eating can really come into its own. There is, for example, preclinical data looking at what happens when you give, albeit nocturnal, mice access to so-called high-fat diets, which are really high-sugar diets too, around the clock. And comparing that to when you give them restricted access to the high-fat diet. But in both conditions, they can consume as much of the high-fat diet as they like. What you find is that during the time-restricted feeding condition, the mice consume an equivalent number of calories, but given that they're only consuming the calories during the biological daytime, their circadian systems function better. They end up gaining less fat mass. They have better liver health. So when they eat around the clock, they tend to develop steatohepatitis, so fatty liver disease. And they also have some other improvements in their cardiometabolic health. So that was a predictably long answer, but I think that covers most of the recommendations that are most pertinent to the listeners, although there are some other things that we could touch on, such as how does physical activity modify those recommendations? Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. See you there. No, fantastic. And I'm going to do my best now to try and somewhat summarize it um, for the listeners, just because I think um, that the practical take home, at least I got from that, was start with a 12-hour eating window. Um, half an hour after your normal wake time and then spreading your protein every four or so hours four to six hours between that relatively evenly most people eating like a gram per pound protein which is probably somewhat close to that 0.4 per kilo protein mark as well Um, and that is because generally we're just gonna and front load most of the calories in your day as well so don't eat like large amounts uh, before that time as as well and then constrain that a little bit if you're on fewer calories because i imagine especially if there's any contest prep um, smaller individuals normally females as well who are maybe sedentary maybe on little over a thousand calories um, it's kind of a little bit nicer to spread that over fewer meals as well and i guess something for i mean 12 hours when you people don't like to think i mean 12 hours isn't actually that constrained when you think about it like typically that is probably two hours before bed um especially if you're having it half an hour after waking but a lot of bodybuilders are very much with nutrient timing trying to maximize that muscle protein synthesis and so they would be like oh but what is maybe the problem with or is there a problem or what's the trade-off to including another protein serving right before bed so that you are trying to like you said have your biggest protein serving when you're having that big gap between the morning the evening and then the morning could you try and elongate the kind of and spike muscle protein synthesis again and yeah what might the trade-off be in that kind of position do we do we know we don't know 
And it's a really interesting question. I remember being at university while I was studying sports science and wanting to put on a bit of muscle mass and being one of those guys who woke up at night to pee and neck to protein shake in the middle of the night. So I thought, oh, it's another opportunity to tap that out was my muscle next protein question. synthesis. <laughs> yeah. And it hasn't, it hasn't been studied in the context of time-restricted eating. And theoretically, it makes some sense. You've got that additional opportunity to maximally stimulate it and muscle protein balance. So whether you're gaining muscle or losing muscle is, of course, dependent on the number of times that you maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis over the course of the day. So I think it will be fine to give it a go. But what I would say is that so far, the research hasn't really shown that time-restricted eating will adversely affect fat-free mass retention during a hypocaloric diet or adversely affect how much fat-free mass people gain while they're in energy balance. I doubt that having an additional protein serving very late in the day is likely to have much of an effect. I think if you're going to have anything shortly before bed, then protein is probably what I would pick because you don't want to have a big bolus of carbohydrate at that time. And you probably don't want to have a big bolus of fat at that time either. And again, there is that theoretical possibility to positively affect fat-free mass by having that protein feeding at that time. But I think I would tend to gravitate to just telling people to having a big bolus at the end of the caloric period and possibly picking a, a slowly digested protein at a time such as casein. But play around with it. And if you are in your off season and you are hell bent on gaining as much muscle as is physically possible, then I think plugging in a final protein feeding late in the day is, is probably okay. It's probably not, not optimal in terms of your circadian system function. It could disrupt your sleep theoretically. And I think that is possibly the most important consideration. The reasons for that are probably twofold. One of them is that after you consume anything that contains calories, you will experience a transient tendency towards an increase in your core body temperature. You have diet-induced thermogenesis and all the different macronutrients, protein and alcohol, will produce the most diet-induced thermogenesis. So having lots of protein late in the day could interfere with your ability to fall asleep given that if you can do things to facilitate the drop in core body temperature, which typically happens around that time, people tend to fall asleep faster and sleep slightly better. The other factor is, as we've spoken about previously, protein does normally contain creatine, of course. And if creatine does have slightly alerting effects, then that could potentially disrupt sleep a little bit. And interestingly, there has been some work looking at dietary macronutrient composition that's affecting sleep and the quality of the research isn't that high but there are suggestions that very high protein diets lead to slightly fragmented sleep and i think it's probably the creatine that's at least in part contributing to that tendency so you could try having some protein late in the day i'd consume the protein by itself, I'd probably consume a slowly digested protein and 
I would just keep an eye on my sleep to work out whether that late protein feeding might be disrupting it. If it's not, then I think you can crack on. But I would probably say that for those times when you're trying to gain as much fat-free mass as possible, and I wouldn't worry about it too much if I was in contest prep. Okay, cool. And um, no, that's really interesting. And the only other thing that's on my mind is uh, a bit like, I don't know, I heard about this ages ago, but it's like Turkey contains quite a lot of tryptophan and uh, this can help promote sleep. Could you somehow try and consume a protein rich in tryptophan to counterbalance this? And I don't know if obviously on a previous podcast, you recommended having that hot shower uh, pre-bed uh, within the, the hour pre-bed. Could you have this as what like have the hot shower and that might help like counterbalance it um i don't know if there's strategies you can try and yeah make the the best out of the situation yeah i think all those things that we've discussed previously with respect to getting ready to have restorative sleep are likely to help offset any small negative effects of consuming lots of protein late in the evening and having hot shower 40 degrees celsius for 10 minutes one to two hours before bed is one of those things that's been proven multiple times and in a meta-analysis to improve sleep quality and help people fall asleep faster. With respect to tryptophan, there's a little bit of research on this and some of it's looked at elderly people and some of it's looked at fortifying kids' breakfast cereal with tryptophan. And those studies, again, are not of the highest quality, but have tended to show that when people consume that tryptophan-enriched diet, they sleep slightly better. The reason being that tryptophan is a precursor to melatonin synthesis by serotonin. That's what people think is the reason at least. But one thing I'd mention is that there are lots of different food constituents that are likely to affect sleep. Tryptophan is just one of them, and you could consume a tryptophan rich protein source and there have been some studies looking at some different dairy proteins that are tryptophan enriched and there are some suggestions that they might have some positive effects on sleep but then there are all of those other things too that could positively affect sleep consumed relatively late in the day so just to give you some examples of that probably the best studied of these is tart cherry juice not regular cherry juice specifically the studies of tended to use Montmorency tart cherry juice. And they normally use 30 milliliters of that twice a day. And the reason is that tart cherries, like many plants, are quite rich in phytomelatonin, so plant sources of melatonin, and might thereby support sleep. And those studies have quite consistently shown that consuming that quantity of tart cherry juice tend to improve sleep in people who aren't sleeping particularly well and interestingly there's also some work showing that consuming tart cherry juice might reduce some of the negative effects at least in the short term very damaging exercise if you steve spent today doing squats with 80 percent of your one rep max and did three sets every hour and tomorrow you you're just feeling pretty horrible about life because your quads and your productors were so sore then 
if in a parallel universe you repeated the same experiment but consumed cherry juice, then you might find that you're less sore the next day. And also that your knee extension strength, for example, recovered a little bit faster after tart cherry juice. So I think tart cherry juice is a good option for, for many athletes. How it affects adaptations to resistance training hasn't really been well studied. And I'll just add the caveat that sometimes things that people do that have some acutely beneficial effects have some chronically negative effects so an obvious example of that is antioxidant supplementation and adaptations to endurance exercise risto michael risto who's done some cool work on that for example showing that if people consume lots of certain vitamins and do so during aerobic training they won't see some of the same improvements in aerobic capacity that they otherwise would have seen so i think tart cherry juice is a good option. There's been a study or two looking at kiwi consumption, looking at what happens when people consume two kiwi fruits at their final dietary event of the day, finding that that might support sleep. But skin on. <laughs> yeah, that's that's potentially not the highest quality research. And there's also been some work looking at beef steak tomato consumption what happens when people consume 250 grams of beef steak tomatoes and again the research reported that people slept slightly better after that so there are certain plants that can positively affect sleep and then there are a few other things too i think we've spoken previously about carbohydrate intake and the fact that if you consume in particular high glycemic load carbohydrates relatively late in the day, then because your pancreas will kick out quite a lot of insulin in response to that bonus, the insulin will tend to drive certain amino acids, specifically the branch chain amino acids, in skeletal muscle, which if you're trying to gain fat-free mass is a good thing. And what that means is there are fewer branch chain amino acids in the bloodstream competing for entry into the brain via the large neutral amino acid transporter, and tryptophan competes with those BCAAs for entry into the brain, which means that more tryptophan can go into the brain and therefore more tryptophan can be converted to melatonin, which could affect sleep. So basically, if people consume lots of high glycemic load carbs at their final meal of the day, then they might actually sleep slightly better. But as I've, I think, touched on in previous podcasts, the trade-off there is that in general, the research shows that when people consume more of their carbohydrates relatively early in the day, they tolerate those carbohydrates better in terms of their blood glucose excursions to feeding. So high glycemic load, high-ish carb, final meal of the day might have positive effects on some people. And I think that's most relevant to people who train in the biological afternoon. Steve, if, if you have your two training sessions a day. I know you're training once a day at the moment because you're deloading, but if you're training twice a day and your second session is high-ish volume, not especially damaging, but largely pump work, then that's going to drive quite a lot of glucose into your muscles. And if you consume a relatively high-carb dinner, then your glucose disposal will be quite good. So 
that's unlikely to produce very large swings in your blood sugar and that high carb meal might then support your sleep which would be particularly helpful potentially during periods when you are pushing your limits your borderline overreaching for instance fantastic oh, i'm just in my head kind of compiling the perfect pre like pre-bed it's two hours before bed but the perfect like final meal high protein high glycemic um kiwis we've got cherries at tart cherries in there <laughs> <laughs> throwing yeah like a turkey leg although that might be a bit high in fat uh so it, it it's fascinating and i think it's it's really really eye-opening for like i said for the kind of the bodybuilding community because it's not things people really considered before uh, it isn't something people have considered and i'm really glad you brought up the um the the role of exercise in this because i think all the research has been on not considering people who are kind of training um or at least later in the day like if someone is doing a nine to five and then they train in the evening now you said like obviously that kind of their their ability to um dispose of nutrients is going to be upregulated because they've stimulated the muscles and that then change does that change where you might prescribe someone's uh, carbohydrate feedings so that it's supporting that training and maybe isn't having the negative effects on the circadian rhythm i guess for you this is not researched so it's more just based off your own theoretical knowledge and things yeah but i'm, I'm happy to speculate as to how people should try and navigate that and as we discussed in, I think the last podcast, maybe it was the podcast before last, I think it was the podcast before last, the best time at which to do strength and power exercise is probably in the late biological afternoon. Just as a random example, if you look at most world records, they're generally set at about 8 p.m. And that's because core body temperature is highest in the late afternoon, as of course is metabolic rate and so on. And if you're training at that time of day, then if anything, that might have some positive effects on your adaptations to that type of exercise and your performance at the individual training sessions might be a little bit higher. So if you're doing that, then I think consuming a substantial quantity of your daily carbohydrate intake around that session is fine. What I would say is that if you're thinking about training twice a day, for instance, then you need to think about your priority training sessions. So in which sessions is it most important that you're performing at your best? And prior to those sessions, you want full muscle glycogen stores. So if you're training twice a day and you have a heavy session in the morning, Steve, you go into the gym and you train at 10.30 in the morning, that's your heavy session for the day. I would say if you're digestion allows it consuming lots of carbs shortly before that session moderate amount of carbs after that session is a good way to go because then you're supporting your performance in that training session and then if you're training later in the day let's say at 4 p.m it's it's moderate volume it's lower intensity it's more of that pump work consuming a bit of carbohydrate on either side of that is probably fine and then trying to make sure that for the next morning session where you are going balls to the wall, your glycogen stores are full, makes a lot of sense. So I just think pick the sessions that are most important to you, concentrate your carbs such that your glycogen stores are full for those sessions. And then on your rest days, 
front load your carb intake. If you're on a low carb diet, front load your fat intake. You can, in this instance, I think probably treat carbs and fats interchangeably and in that you want to front load either of them and then keep your protein intake relatively evenly distributed. Just to add a couple of thoughts. One is that when you have people go through time-restricted eating and specifically early time-restricted eating, people are likely to inadvertently change the foods and drinks that they consume. And I think this is sometimes lost in this discussion. If somebody has a caloric period that starts at 10 a.m., and finishes at 4 p.m., which for many people is not going to be doable. And the research that's looked at attitudes to time-restricted eating so far has basically said, I liked it, it improved my quality of life, but I couldn't really do the early time-restricted eating thing because it interfered with family commitments and I work a nine-to-five job. So it just wasn't practical for me. But with that said, for those few people who can try early time-restricted eating, what they'll probably find is that they're less likely to indulge in certain less healthy foods and drinks. Most people consume wine late in the day. A lot of people will tend to snack on energy dense, very palatable foods that maybe aren't particularly micronutrient dense quite late in the day too. I see. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You speak from personal experience, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> So I, th- I think for those people, if they can use early time restricted eating, then it can be really helpful. The tricky thing is that you not only have those life considerations, social commitments, family life, and so on, but there's also a clear circadian rhythm in appetite, such that appetite tends to be lowest very early in the day and tends to be highest quite late yeah. in the day. But what you'll find is that if you can go through this transitional period in which it's a little bit tricky for a day or three because you're finding yourself a bit hungry at night and wanting to eat at night, but you're trying this early time restricted eating thing, you'll re-entrain your hunger patterns such that you start getting hungry earlier in the day and then later in the day, after a few days of early time restricted eating, you're not so hungry anymore and your appetite is more even keeled. And again, Courtney Peterson's group has done some nice work on this, looking at what happens when people consume their calories between about 6am and about 3pm, about 8am and about 3pm, as opposed to about 8am and about 9pm. And what she's found is that within a few days, people's appetite, is actually a little bit lower with the early time restricted eating intervention. And specifically, it's lower in the evening, which is probably a bit counterintuitive to some people, at least at first. So I think there's a time when you just need to stick to it. And if you're trying this for the first time, then you'll probably find yourself consuming a lot of non-caloric drinks in order to better cope with those times when you would have previously been eating. So this is the time when the mint teas of the world come into their own. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting here you talk about the kind of social uh, element of it and like trying to incorporate it with other things because again, I bring it back to myself, the audience who are 
like a lot of our training commitments were almost hyper focused obsessed with it um probably in the past have had like stopwatches eating protein and rice at particular <laughs> or chicken and rice at particular times and this is another one of those it's kind of like ah now i've got a like i don't know i'm out in the evening for dinner at 8 p.m but that's now outside of my normal eating window or whatever it might be and it, it can be another challenge is it something where you would say for those instances that it does happen like that happens and like it's understandable and just do it implement it when you can is is the difference um going to be huge is it going to upset everything by having those rare occasions where you do go off plan is that the kind of the way you would uh coach it for someone it's not going to upset everything <laughs> and i know so many people who have that tendency to just let the wheels fall off entirely if they deviate from the plan even a little bit and then all of a sudden they've consumed 5,000 calories <laughs> at 10 p.m just because they they started eating a biscuit so don't don't worry about it occasional deviations are fine and i think there are some strategies that people can use to make sure that they don't go on a massive binge at those times so let's say that you are with your friends and you're going out for dinner, which right now during this pandemic is pretty unlikely, but let's just rewind back in time to the good old days, the Brexit days. <laughs> <laughs> so if you think about those occasions, then there are some little things that you can do. So one of them would be consuming a bolus of protein shortly before going out for dinner. When people do that, they will tend to, of course, support their fat-free mass, but also less likely to overindulge. If you give people a bolus of protein, their total energy intake tends to subsequently be lower than it otherwise would. And the protein will also help reduce blood sugar excursions in response to any foods that you consume subsequently. I think a high fiber item at that time can also be helpful. So let's say that you had a protein shake containing 30 grams of protein and an apple. That would be a good way to go. Chewing gum is something that isn't particularly healthy. I don't think I'm not a massive fan of sugar alcohols, but at the same time, I think there's good evidence showing that if people chew gum, then they're less likely to consume too many calories at a subsequent eating occasion so chewing gum before those types of events or during those types of events can be handy if you're at a buffet for example you might want to pick a smaller plate and load up on protein and fiber rich items first i didn't mention this earlier but one strategy that's rarely discussed which is really interesting and potentially very beneficial, especially for people who don't have good blood sugar control, is saving carbohydrate-rich items for last at dietary events. And there's a lady named Alpana Shukla who's published a few studies on this. And basically in those studies she's taken people who either have prediabetes or diabetes, type 2 diabetes specifically, and she's looked at how their blood sugar and insulin respond to different sequences of macronutrient consumption. And to summarize those studies, if people consume 
carbohydrate-rich items about 10 to 15 minutes after consuming protein and or fiber-rich items, their blood sugar responses to those dietary events are something like 30 to 50% lower than they otherwise would be. If you're a healthy bodybuilder, this might not be too relevant to you, but there's zero harm in saving your carbs for the end of the meal when it's practical. And I don't want you to get super neurotic about this by any means, but it is interesting when you think about many traditional dietary patterns and how people have thrived for long periods of time. So for example, think of Mediterranean cultures where it might be the norm to have a large salad before a meal. In terms of metabolic regulation, that makes a lot of sense. So I think when you're in this buffet circumstance, consuming the protein and fiber rich items at the start, so let's say that that's some chicken with some vegetables, is going to not only improve your blood sugar regulation and possibly your blood lipid regulation too, but also I think it would probably reduce how much you would eat subsequently. So in the Shukla studies, she had people consume, a f- consume everything. So they consumed a fixed number of calories. But interestingly, she looked at some increasing hormones too and basically found that if you look, for example, at GLP-1, then there was higher GLP-1 production when people consumed the protein and fiber-rich foods first. And given its role as an appetite regulation, you'd expect those GLP-1 responses to subsequently lead to reduced energy intake. So I think the likelihood is that people will not only improve their blood sugar control and their blood lipids, but they might also end up eating less too. So I think those strategies are helpful. And then there are also other things too, like just making sure that you consume plenty of water at those times, because the actual volume within your stomach is something of a determinant of how hungry you feel at a given time. So occasional digressions, not a problem. In those circumstances, try some of those simple tips. Chew your gum, drink your water, have a protein shake and an apple first, use a small plate, save the carbs for the end of the meal. And I think those will stand you in good stead. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. Perfect. No, I think really good. Um, I think like from a standpoint of, yeah, people are very robotic. They want to get everything all the time. And sometimes the stress that that creates and like you got to live life and have some balance is important as well. But it is so funny how our kind of lives are often set up counter counter to maybe even circadian not to side tangent i just know even what younger individuals going to school at that early time and they don't necessarily function their best i think was one of them it's just interesting all of these kind of things and like you said a lot of the like you do have this big dinner pre-bed and this is when people enjoy and they say i mean a lot of the people i work with i have to build them away from habits where they're saving calories for late in the day and especially when you're dieting and this is something i used to do was save a lot of calories later in the day and have much less during the day because for whatever reason that seemed easier 
But maybe, as you talked about, it was just that's what you've got comfortable with and the body's used to it and it will get hungry at these regular intervals. Whereas when you transition away from it and you allow yourself to have the big breakfast, you're not as hungry later in the day as well. So I think that was really well said. Yeah, there are a couple more things to mention in here, I think. And one to circle back to the start is that when speaking about diet timing, I think the science of chronic nutrition clearly shows that people should speak about diet timing relative to their biological timing. So don't eat after 6 p.m. might be really good advice for one person and rubbish advice for somebody whose body clock timing is quite different. So when I speak about these things, I always speak about it relative to the sleep-wake cycle because that's the most practical proxy of the timing of your body's clock that you have. So that's one consideration. Now, something that I want to mention is that there have been several studies, and I think possibly the best of these studies have been done by a lady named Danielle Yakubovics, that have looked at what happens when you keep the caloric period the same, or maybe it's slightly different in some studies, but you keep it roughly the same, but you change the distribution of those calories within it. And she published a study a few months ago now that looked at what happens when you take people who have type 2 diabetes and for a period of several weeks, you split them into two different groups. And in one group, people consume about half of their calorie and carb intake at breakfast. And in the other group, their calorie and carb intake is more evenly distributed throughout the day. In this instance, the caloric period wasn't exactly the same because the second group had a small evening snack too, but the caloric period wasn't that different. And what she found was that over 12 weeks or so, these people who concentrated their calories and carbohydrates early in the day, not only had dramatically improved blood sugar regulation and were therefore using smaller quantities of hypoglycemic drugs too to regulate that, they had fewer hypoglycemic episodes. They had dramatically improved body composition. This is the point that I want to make. The people on the early group lost about 5.4 kilograms. And the people in the other condition whose diets were matched for macronutrient intakes didn't lose any weight whatsoever. And this built on a study that she published in 2013 that looked at what happens when you take two groups of overweight or obese women and you put them through weight loss diets for 12 weeks. And the diets are the same in their macronutrient composition and the timing of breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But in one instance, the ladies consume half their calories at breakfast. And in the other instance, they consume half of them at dinner. And what she found was that when people consumed half of them at breakfast, they lost 11% of their body weight over the course of 12 weeks, whereas the dinner group lost 4%. So they lost nearly three times as much weight. The breakfast group lost 8% off their waistlines, whereas the dinner group lost 3% off their waistlines. And the breakfast group had greater improvements in blood sugar and blood lipid regulation too. So the point I'm making is that if you're in contest prep and you're struggling to lose fat, 
imagine a circumstance in which you don't change the composition of your diet at all. But whereas previously you were consuming most of your calories at dinner, if you just shift the timing of your macronutrients around such that you're consuming more of your energy and more of your carbs or fats and or fats early in the day, then you might be able to kickstart fat loss again. So the timing of that, when you control for calories, is quite a strong determinant of changes in your body composition. And to add one more comment to this, there's been some interesting work by researchers at the University of Bath. They had a project called the Bath Breakfast Project that looked at what happens when adults either skip breakfast and don't consume any calories until 12 p.m. or they consume at least 700 calories by 11 a.m. So that's the breakfast condition each day for six weeks. And they did the same protocol in two groups of adults, one group of lean adults and one group of overweight or obese adults. And in the lean adults, when the people skipped breakfast, they consumed fewer calories over the course of the day. And this is something you consistently see in research on time-restricted eating. When people compress their caloric period, they do consume fewer calories each day, which probably largely explains the weight loss that they experience. But when the lean adults skip breakfast, interestingly, they consume fewer calories, but they also moved around less each day, such that energy balance was the same over the period of six weeks and neither group experienced any changes in their body composition. But if you imagine a different scenario in which one group skips dinner, then I just wonder if concentrating calories early in the day effectively sends your brain a signal that I've got some energy on board. I can be more physically active. Mm -hmm. So my guess is that for somebody who is in contest prep, having more of their calories relatively early in the day might lead to greater non-exercise activity thermogenesis too, which would again support them staying in a negative energy balance and therefore their fat loss. Yeah, I was going to ask if, uh, if I, I assume they didn't, I don't even know. You, I don't know how you try and, uh, I guess, um, measure non-exercise activity thermogenesis. But I'm thinking whether or not you were to give the same person that same diet at different times, but then you kept them all at ten thousand steps or something. Yeah. So but it might be. Sorry. Go on. No, no, no. I, I interrupt you. Sorry, Steve. I was just going to say. I wonder if I've been there where I could do ten thousand steps, but one is clearly more energized and I'm probably expending more energy doing it versus one where I'm like dragging my feet and it's I'm being as efficient as possible. I wonder if that even that could be significant over 10,000 steps. Yeah, and, and there's a separate discussion that we don't need to have about, for example, some Simon Ponce's research and how changes in physical activity influence energy balance. But I, I don't think we need to go into that too much for the time being so i want to make sure we touch on this uh before you go because i think i mean i could dig into greg's brain forever um i think you always come out with some really interesting things and i think we've covered some very good topics for today and given some really good practical takeaways as well so uh, fantastic and i wanted to talk about something that greg's been working on and i have had the opportunity to try anyone who is following me over on Instagram and hopefully all the listeners are following Revive Stronger on Instagram if you're not 
you know where to head now. Um, I was lucky enough to try some samples of a product uh, that Greg had been working on. And I was very excited to hear that Greg was working on something because, like I said, I think Greg is great. I think um, anything that you were going to put your name to and work towards is something I wanted to have some knowledge on. And it was some nut butters uh, called Resilient Nut um, Nutrition. Oh, wait, was that correct? Have I written yeah. it? Yeah, right? <laughs> so the, the, the company name is Resilience Nutrition. Resilient. But, but I, I like that Resilient Nut. nut. <laughs> yeah, I just made that one up. <laughs> yeah. That might be one of our hashtags in due course. <laughs> that needs to be. So Resilient Nutrition. And um, I wanted to give Greg, yeah, to talk about it because I think you guys are going to be equally as interested because you're listening to this. So you're probably interested in it as well. Um, and I can already say they tasted delicious, um, but that's not necessarily the most important thing for a lot of people. It will be important, uh, but I want to let Greg kind of explain what why it came about, uh, what the product is looking to do. Yeah, and Steve, you haven't actually tried the latest versions. So the latest versions, which are the versions better? that we're launching with, they are a little bit better, which excites me. But Resilient Nutrition is a company that I co-founded with my friend, who's a lovely man, Ali McDonald, who's the CEO, and I'm the CSO, the Chief Science Officer, and have driven the formulation of the products. But our first product is named Long Range Fuel, and it's a series of nut butters. And the backstory to this is that Towards the end of 2019, Ali and I were helping two guys get ready to row the Atlantic in the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. And we were primarily helping them with their nutrition. As you can imagine, when you've got two guys who are around 100 kilos rowing the Atlantic, rowing round the clock, they burn quite a lot of energy. So I think they needed very energy dense, easy to digest snacks that were nourishing and supported their performance and would be stable in the inclement conditions throughout the race. And so we began concocting prototypes of what eventually became long range fuel for them. And I hope this doesn't sound like we're blowing our trumpets because I wouldn't take any credit for their success, but they did really well. They broke the world record. And they rode the Atlantic in just under 37 days and eight hours. And what we did is continue to refine the formulations of long range fuel. And the reason was that we began using long range fuel ourselves in lots of other contexts. And we just found that it was really helpful for lots of different things from knowledge work performance to being a, a pre-workout aid. And to explain what long range fuel is, it's basically a series of different nut butters. And these nut butters are available in four different versions, which are better suited to different times of day. So there's a so-called energized version, which contains caffeine and L-theanine. And I won't go into the details of the science, but in short, we use an amount of caffeine that enhances performance in endurance exercise, strength and power exercise, and intermittent sprint exercise, as well as enhancing multiple aspects of cognition from alertness to reaction time, to mood, to some aspects of executive function. And there's also some theanine, L-theanine in there, and we use a dose which has been shown by a recent meta-analysis to 
reduce anxiety. And caffeine's been studied multiple times in conjunction with L-theanine, and they seem to have some additive effects. And L-theanine seems to reduce mind wandering, for example. So we have that energized version, which is perfect as a pre-workout aid, or at the start of a night shift, for example, or in the latter stages of very long exercise, or just before a hard day at the office. We have calm versions of long-range fuel, and these contain KSM-66 ashwagandha in the dose which has been used in all of the clinical studies on this form of ashwagandha, which is the best studied form of ashwagandha that there is. Ashwagandha is an Ayurvedic herb that's been used for millennia, and traditionally people have spoken about it as giving individuals the strength of a horse, which is apparently because it has a slightly horsey smell, which I don't recognize. I haven't spent too much time around horses though. But ashwagandha is really interesting in that it seems to benefit lots of different things. Traditionally, it's spoken about as an adaptogen, so it helps people cope with stress. It reduces, for example, cortisol responses to psychological and physical stresses. But ashwagandha is not only anxiolytic or anxiety reducing, it also supports performance in cardiorespiratory exercise. And there are a couple of studies showing that if people consume 600 milligrams of ashwagandha each day over the course of several weeks, they get better adaptations to strength of power exercise such that they gain muscle faster and they gain strength faster too. So it should be of interest to people listening to this. And then both those energized and calm versions are also available as rebuild versions. So there's an energized and rebuild product and a calm and rebuild product. And the rebuild versions contain whey protein isolate. Whey protein isolate is, of course, the highest quality protein there is in terms of its amino acid profile and digestibility. If you look at the diast, the digestible, indispensable amino acid score, then whey protein is as good as they get. So they contain whey protein isolate to support muscle protein balance, adaptations to exercise training, immune function, and to keep appetite at bay. But they also contain L-leucine. I mentioned L-leucine earlier, but they contain a substantial amount of L-leucine. And L-leucine is interesting in that you can take small quantities of protein or larger quantities of lower quality protein, and you can add L-leucine to them. And the protein profile becomes substantially more anabolic after adding leucine. And so we add our leucine to them too. So we've got those four different versions, each of which is available in up to four flavors. And there's a chocolate and hazelnut one. There's a coffee and pecan one. There is a coconut and almond one. And there's a cinnamon and cashew one. And I think people tend to gravitate to the chocolate one because everyone just buys chocolate everything. Yeah. But they're they're actually all really good. And I'm obviously massively biased and have basically formulated these for my own palate. So I, th <laughs> I think they're all fantastic, but I would find it really hard picking between the different flavors in terms of which ones are best. But all the products are based on tree nuts and regular tree nut intake has all sorts of positive effects from things like blood sugar regulation to blood lipids and appetite too. There's no shit in any of them. I am a proponent of an ancestral approach to nutrition in general, and these products are very much in keeping with that. But what we try to do is we try to combine the best of whole foods with the best of the state of the science research on nutrition.
to make something which is better than something which is just based on whole foods alone. So what you end up with is a series of nut butters that support performance in both mental and physical tasks, which taste pretty great. And Steve, I'm happy to, to give people listening to this a discount code if, if they want to try them too. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, to say the discount code, uh, Steve10, correct, lowercase, and then 10 for 10% off. Yeah, and 10, 10 will just be the number one and the number zero. Yeah. And I'll make sure the website's all linked below so people can go and check them out. And if they do want to pick them up, I'll put the, the discount code below as well. And I can say, like, I mean, the ones I tried, even though they weren't the final formulation, they were very tasty. If I had to give my favorite, it would probably have been the cinnamon and the coffee ones. I, I thought the chocolate would be, but for some reason, the cinnamon and the coffee ones, just they, they were spot on. And what I really liked about it, Greg, is, I mean, obviously you're behind it. You've just explained the whole science behind it, but there's nothing else from what I've seen on the market like it. I've seen nut butters that have whey protein in them, but not with the leucine included, which is actually probably fairly important considering you're probably not getting um, enough protein from just the nuts entirely there so uh, and it reinvigor reinvigorated my love sorry for nut butters because i just hadn't really consumed them for a while and then i tried them i was like oh and now i'm yeah hooked and i i'm still eating <laughs> like nut butters every day now so uh, i thank you for that yeah well that, that's that's good to hear mate cool so i think we've covered everything uh hopefully people have got a lot of value from this um we always enjoy uh, chatting and yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Um, take care and thank you for listening. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people, uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.